0: Hey there, you're listening to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren Legrasso. I'm Lauren Legrasso and this is a show to help you make creativity the filter for your life. Claim the word creative. Redefine your relationship with fear. Take it out of the driver's seat so it's not making decisions for you, so that you're in that front seat of your life saying, Hey, this is what I want to do. And fear, you can go sit in the back seat, okay? And then also to fully embody who you are and proclaim your right to have a dream. And today, I want to do a quick creative check-in, and it's all about the power of coming back to a creative exploit after some time away, and the relief that can also come when there's either a partner or a boss involved in your creativity. So this came up for me because last week I was acting in this awesome stage reading at the Sacred Fools Theater Company here in LA called We the People, and I put out a tweet that said the following about the experience. Today I acted again, and there was a director and it felt nice to have guidance. I've been so used to doing creative projects on my own for so long that I forgot what it felt like to have someone give you lines and reflect notes back to you. I really liked it. Here's the thing. While it is great to be in control of your own creative destiny and to be the founder and CEO of your own creative projects, it's also a lot of pressure. It's super lonely. You never really know if you're doing it right. All the joys you experience alone, all the sadness you experience alone, you have no one to reflect back to you, how things are going, and it's wonderful to do something independently that's just for you, but being a part of a group is such a powerful thing. When you're all together for one collective goal, no matter if it's creative or otherwise, it's just a different feeling than when you're in a silo putting things together by yourself. And I've realized how much I've missed that. Obviously, it would be great to have a bigger team, both on my podcast and my music. And even with my producing, like a lot of the times I'm producing alone, maybe there's a host there, but I'm a one person producing team. I just think that there's such a power creating in groups and really personally, for this particular experience, I was really relieved that I had a director telling me what to do because I realized I'm exhausted from making choices all the time. It felt good to make choices, but then to have somebody rein me in. So there's that. And then it was also super cathartic to act again, to get up and do something. Because if you are just listening for the first time, I came out to LA to act. Acting broke my heart. Like I couldn't mentally handle the rejection piece of it, like basically the business piece of it was too much for me. And so that's why I started redirecting to these other things, but I still love it. So it was just so much fun to get up there and act again. And I got to do a funny piece and a deep soulful piece. And it's really interesting. If you take a while away from one part of your creativity and then come back to it, you, especially if you've done the work to not have those negative attachments or those painful attachments to it anymore, you can come back with this really fresh, excited energy and and find the joy that you had in it when you first found it when you were probably a little kid or at least younger in your journey. So that was really fun. So again, two-fold check-in. If you're used to creating alone, I really highly suggest trying something with a group or a leader to remember what it feels like to just create and not be tied up in the business and hustle and really isolation of having to judge whether something is good or not on your own. And, you know, that could be anything from like taking – A painting class, to you know, if you have a project that you're working on, like bringing another person in for a night, you know, whatever it is, just bring someone in so that you're in a group, and I think it will really just take some. I don't know. It honestly almost felt like meditating. It's it felt like someone took like a ten pound weight off my back, and then also remember the value and the sweetness of coming to a former creative love after you took a long break from it, and if you haven't, you know, checked it out in a while. See how it feels to go dip your toe in in the water of that previous creative love. Sometimes it's good to circle back, especially when it's creativity. You might want to, you know, second-guess yourself when it comes to exes. But when it comes to ex-creative lovers, I highly recommend you check them out again. (laughs) All right, now let's get to the guest. She is amazing. Her name's Holly Whitaker. I met Holly through Gerboss. She's incredible. So here's a little bit about her. She's a sobriety coach, teacher, author, speaker, podcast personality, yoga instructor, and founder and CEO of Tempest, an online sobriety school that provides a modern accessible recovery program that is built around you. In 2012, Holly found herself living the life that she thought she always wanted. She lived in the big city, brunched on Sundays, wore the right clothes, had the right apartment, maintained the right waistline, and was at the height of her career. She was a director at a hot San Francisco health tech startup. But behind all these seeming accomplishments, she was miserable, stressed, anxious, bulimic, and addicted to alcohol, pot, and cigarettes. Finally recognizing she couldn't keep going on this way, she dedicated herself to sobriety, but she did it her way. Knowing that AA wouldn't work for her and rehab was not a financial option, she creatively paved the path to sobriety around herself. And the more I went down that different way, the more I became certain
1: that it was okay to trust myself. And the more that I felt it was okay to trust myself, the more it did not make sense to me to follow traditional pathways to sobriety.
0: Holly says the key to getting sober is, quote, building a life I don't want or need to escape from. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. When we engage in anything that's a negative habit or even an addiction, it's usually because we're trying to escape some piece of ourselves that is out of alignment or many pieces of ourselves that are out of alignment. I wanted to have Holly on the show because I can't think of many things that are more creative than paving your own path to recovery in a world that tells you a 12-step program is the only way to do it. Her book, Quit Like a Woman, also moved me deeply. We talk about it a lot in the episode. It's a great guidebook if you want to start a sober life, but really, I think it just holds hundreds of deep lessons on how to fully embody and honor ourselves. From our conversation, you'll learn how to overcome having your creativity stifled as a child, remother yourself, start turning toward your truth, why it's important to choose guilt over resentment, how to learn from your failures, plus how to creatively forge your own path to healing. Now here she is, Holly Whitaker. A big part of why I wanted to have you on the show, Holly, is because of your creative approach to sobriety and because much of your approach to get sober, as you outlined in your book, it's similar to the principles that we talk about on the show about embracing and mothering your inner child, claiming your right to take up space, and getting to a place where fear isn't making decisions for you. But before we get into that, because we're going to take a deep dive, I want to go back to the beginning, because I believe creativity is deeply connected to our little selves. So I'm wondering, growing up, when you trace the lines of your life, what was the first sign you were a creative human?
1: Well, I think what's so interesting about it is I didn't think I was creative at all. And I think that's a really important story, too, because... I think that I was a wild child. I was I was just actually talking to one of my friends this week and he has a son and his son is constantly getting in trouble. And I was I mean my whole entire childhood I was I was always in trouble because I was in our mainstream society. I think that any sort of deviation from the norm gets beaten out of us. And I had a I had a childhood where I don't think I was I think I was encouraged to take ballet classes and art classes and all sorts of things, but I feel like the actual creative piece of me, the part of me that thrives now because I have decided to ignore the boundaries placed on me about how I will be, how I will express myself. I feel like I was punished for it when I was growing up, so I would never I would not Call myself a creative child. I became an accountant. So that's a great thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there was this one really powerful part of the book where you share this, a real life scene from your childhood where you were being held down. I think it was because you were refusing to brush your teeth. Was that it? Yeah. Yeah. And then it's so interesting that that became one of your top self care acts as you got into sobriety. It was like you oh kind of like reclaimed that for yourself.
1: I never drew those things together. That is so (laughs) funny. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I did. I mean, my parents, I used to throw – I mean, I, I feel like I had just so much energy and so much life in me and I don't think anybody knew what to do with it and they tried to restrain it and to contain it and it would just blow up and I had temper tantrums when I was little. I remember having my mom straddle me on the bathroom floor and brush my teeth. I resisted. (laughs) (laughs)
0: what would be your advice for parents who have a child with that kind of I mean really what it is is creative energy looking for a place to release how would you advise them to instead of trying to control or stifle that in their kid allow them to express it in a healthy way
1: yeah I think the thing that would have been really helpful for me as a as a kid was was being given the tools to manage my energy instead of just being made to feel wrong for it I think that that like meditation is something that I have grown to love. It gives me impulse control. It allows me to channel. And I think like allowing your children, What one of my, one of my good friends, he's actually kind of my boyfriend, I guess. Um, He's got a kid and Um, he's got a kid and his (laughs) kid reminds me every time he talks about his kid, I'm just like immediately internalizing that kid as me because we are so similar. And I, my constant advice to him, like whenever this kid gets in trouble or whenever this kid, like by his teachers or whenever his friend, you know, like he's too much. I mean, he's like a kid that's too much. And whenever I hear about it, I'm just like, oh. You know, the world still today, you know, whatever, 30 something years later is still not a friendly place to people that are too much. And so I think it's just reminding, you know, like I think it's one is reminding, reminding kids that don't, especially kids that don't fit the mold, kids that can't sit sit still, like that they are so special, like they are just Mm -hmm. so incredibly special. And that I think also giving them the tools to truly be able to manage their energy
0: is Is, you know, for me, it was just such a game changer. I think those two things. And a big part of your book is about remothering yourself. Yeah. And I think that that's something that people who are in a similar situation to what you had growing up really need to do in order to just exist in the world, but especially to pursue a creative path. Cause this is brutal, even if you did have that kind of support. But if you didn't, it makes it a million times harder. So, what would be some tips for someone who had a similar upbringing to you on how to start? Remothering mothering and taking care of that little self within them?
1: Oh, God. I think believing myself is the first thing that was so important and not believing in myself, but just believing myself. I think allowing myself to accept a truth that maybe no one else would mirror back to me, especially like in terms of my own recovery, that's been such a huge part of this, which is just... Allowing myself to exist outside the lines without having to be validated for it. Um, that to me has been one of the ultimate things. That's such a motherly act, right? Which is just like <laughs> believing somebody witnessing, you know, witnessing myself, witnessing whatever feels true for me. I think other things are include just being gentle with myself, really taking the parts of me that were unruly or hard to swallow, like the parts of me that are, you know, that are maybe a little rough around the edges or, or, you know, even like the parts of me that are dark or, or, you know, I was told I was wrong for like, just really loving all of what makes me, me and understanding those things that maybe be so unappealing to other people are actually what makes me unique and beautiful gentleness, so much gentleness.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I love, I mean, your talk about the shadow self and the character Bob in the book and how he reflected. I mean, that was wild because there's so many people, there was someone the other night when I I was talking to him and he was a fine person. He was a nice person, but there was something in him that like inherently irked me. And it was interesting because it was before I read this, but I, I was like trying to, to just like, okay, Lauren, feel compassion for him because it's not about him. It's about you just be compassionate, be compassionate. And I think it was because he was trying so hard to fit in and like fit into the box of what he thought Mm -hmm. me and my friend who were talking to him wanted to be. And that's something I do. And I I love that you touch on that because it's something we all need to think about. Like we're not separate from each other. We're all just Mm -hmm. one. And when we can remember that we have not only more compassion for others, but we can actually finally be okay with the parts of ourselves that are painful to admit to.
1: Well, it's so funny too, because the stuff that stands out to us, it's plugging into us. It stands out to us because it's so alive within us. If it was something that was, you know, that wasn't like a uh, repressed or something that we weren't like, there wasn't a lot of energy around. We just wouldn't even pick up on it, which is so interesting. And it is true. when we pick up on this stuff, especially things we can see in other people, things we can recognize or things we can't even tolerate. It is such a good place to start to like bring compassion to them, bring compassion to ourselves. I know I for me, I think that that's what shadow work is, is teaching me how to use all these things that kind of stick out to me as really good opportunities to accept myself more, <laughs> accept other people more.
0: Yeah. And talking about your journey to recovery. So you found yourself in a job that didn't fulfill you in a string of toxic relationships. You're in a Pretty much lifelong battle with an eating disorder mm-hmm. and addicted to alcohol. Can you talk about what brought you to the place where you're finally ready to stop drinking? Like, what were your breaking moments?
1: Yeah, I think there were a lot of them. There are some that stand out. There was one in particular where I went to. I went on a trip to Costa Rica, and I had this. I don't think I've written about this in anywhere, maybe um, at all. But I went on a trip to Costa Rica, and I had this. Experience where I had been. I mean, for me, it had been a a slow unraveling that just started to really speed up, kind of like a snowball going down a hill. And my drinking really picked up in the years 2010 and 2011 after a breakup. After I was was living with somebody that I thought I was going to marry and have kids with, and. When that relationship ended, I just threw myself into my job and threw myself, I mean, and my my eating disorder really blew up. My drinking really went off the rails. I was pretty much constantly high on pot. So I had this period of time where it was getting worse and worse and worse. And there was this time, there was this, I guess it was probably 2011 or was it 2012? I think it was 2012. I went to Costa Rica and I was... I was having my apartment, I was like spending money to remodel my apartment and I had been working ridiculous amounts of like, I'd been working probably like 60 to 70 to 80 hours a week. And this, like, I, I woke up on, I think probably my first day of vacation, I met the girl who was going to, who is like redoing my apartment. I left my cat with her. I left her with a credit card that had like a $10,000 limit and just said like, use it to do whatever you need to do. I started drinking in the morning. I met my friend for lunch and I remember it was just like, it felt, I mean, I can't even begin to describe how it felt, but it was just like, this cannot be my life. And I, in my mind, this was something I was going to come back from. This was something that I was like, just, I don't know, like a, like, like maybe I had like gone out of the lines, but I was going to come back into it. And I think that whole scene of just it being such a dumpster fire, I mean, it was such a dumpster fire. And, going. I went on a vacation. I went to Costa Rica. And while I was there with one of my friends, I told her that if I didn't get my drinking under control by the time, you know, when we got back that I needed an intervention. And I said it really jokingly, but it was, it was such truth. I was just terrified of what was happening to me and I would get control of it. Like I went back after that trip and I'm sure I pulled it together for a few days. And then I just go off the rails, and it was it was a pretty impossible, an increasingly impossible situation. You know, my
0: life. (laughs) Yeah, there's something so interesting you said there too that I think a lot of people, even if they don't associate themselves currently with having a drinking problem. The idea of being a workaholic for a job that doesn't even fulfill you. I yeah. have definitely been there. I mean, I, I don't know what you qualify it as. Part of me sees it as like codependency or like a need to, I mean, a lot of it probably has to do with the, the kind of like messaging that we got as children, be obedient, work hard, keep your head down. Yeah. But what do you think that is and how does it tie to addiction?
1: Well, I think that there is, I don't, I mean, workaholism, I think like addiction is such an interesting thing. Like people really use that loosely. I mean, an addictive cycle, like specifically is like when we're talking about like chemical and certain behavioral addictions, I mean, like it's a it's a dopaminergic cycle. Like it's actually something that like hijacks your brain and, you know, like goes in and, and, um, reorders your survival response. So there's a real specific thing to it, but I would say like, we're talking about escapism. That's pretty universal. And so I think that for me, that was just where, you know, we're given the set of instructions, like you said, you know, have a perfect body, save your money, get a good job, like accumulate, like we're very material and or materialistic, like everything, you know, we're not we're more material than we're spiritual. And I think for me, this was just like kind of similar to trying to be a certain weight. I, you know, I was I was just doing the thing I knew how to do and work with something I happened to excel at. I mean, I had always been I had always, no matter what my job was, been driven at being the best at it because it was a place I knew how to make things fit. It was a place I could get some sense of control or at least could work toward achieving that sense of
0: control. And so. Validation, you know, like it was definite validation. If you knew you were good at your job and if you just worked hard, you would be really good at it. It was
1: how I kept myself together. I mean, I could go, I, it was just, there were rules. There was a way for me to, to essentially create something that I had control over. And I otherwise didn't really have that. So the more together my work life became, or at least the more I I centered my life around it, the more everything else around it just fell apart.
0: And so, okay, the thing that fascinates me most about you is that in a world that told you that there was really only one way to get sober, and that is through a 12-step program, you created your own path. So, how did you start to develop your own path? Like, was it a conscious thing, or were you just? I know you read that book. Is Alan Carr that wrote it? Yeah. Um, and that was really influential to you. But like, after reading that book, how did you start to make your own way into sobriety?
1: Yeah, and I think that's what's so beautiful about it. It wasn't like a conscious decision. I wasn't like, you know what, I'm going to do. I'm going to construct this path of sobriety <laughs> that no one has ever had before. It was far more like, oh, I just felt. I feel like there was a, a number of things that were happening. One, I think. For me, there was an awareness, a growing awareness. And it's just like this all of us go through our life, right? And and we're gonna all go to I I know no one that has just like picked the right path the entire time. Often we will ignore the thing that wants to come through us. And I feel like my entire life I was ignoring my true essence, my true way of being, um, my purpose, my passions. I consistently turned away from my truth. I consistently turned away from myself. And so I think that there was, as time went on, the voice gets louder, the voice gets louder, the voice gets louder until finally it just starts screaming at you. And so for me, there was this this awakening, not just around my drinking, but around the fact that like life was so much more than what I had settled for. And so for me, there were these things that were accumulating. And part of that was reading about like drinking. Part of it was reading, you know, Alan Carr's book, The Easy Way to Control Alcohol. Part of it was understanding I didn't have to drink. I didn't actually have to make alcohol work in this way that I had been told I was supposed to make alcohol work and so it was on some level just because i started paying attention and i also started to follow follow what felt true to me more than i was following you know the rule book because the rule book did not work all the things that i had tried to do that i was supposed to do did not work it was far more about following just this, I don't know, like following this like popcorn trail of like, oh, well, that works or, or that feels good. Oh, that seems interesting. I started paying attention and I started following uh, popcorn trail, breadcrumb trail, and that I like popcorn. Popcorn's popcorn's is I popcorn is more delicious than bread.
0: Cups. Popcorn,
1: <laughs> um, but it was just. I, I think it was. It was far more about like allowing myself to explore something from my, like from my essence, from what I actually wanted, what I actually craved, what made sense to me, versus following the rule book. And like then, you know, ironically, doing that caused me to see how messed up the rule book is. And so it wasn't like I was like, I'm going to get sober in this different way it was just, first of all, I didn't see myself as somebody that was an alcoholic. And I I definitely was addicted to alcohol, severely addicted to alcohol. But I didn't see myself as somebody that was I, I didn't see myself as somebody that needed traditional recovery paradigms, and I was told I should try them, but it was also something of I don't know some sort of serendipitous like like the moment I started listening to myself was actually the moment that you know like and the things that i that I listened to led me in this different way, and the more I went down that different way, the more I became certain that it was okay to trust myself, and the more that I felt it was okay to trust myself the more it did not make sense to me to follow traditional pathways to sobriety. And so it was an accident, really. It was an accident that I started to listen to myself and that I started to trust myself and that begat more trust. And that trust allowed me to see something from a very different vantage point. I talk about this with my friends who got sober through AA. I, I, By the time I went to AA, I was – and by the time I really got serious with myself, like, okay, this is – like, it's not even I shouldn't drink alcohol or alcohol is bad or I'm addicted to alcohol. It's that I'm going to die if I drink. That This is, like, something that I actually am legitimately struggling with and recovering from. It was six months in, and when I started going to AA, this is what was so interesting about it because I had this very different set of instructions and this very different experience – of alcohol and addiction and recovery, specifically through Alan Carr, but also through what I just started researching on my own. By the time I went to AA, I did not, it was hard for me to follow the instructions of AA and not because I thought I was smarter than it. It's just, it didn't feel like it applied to me. It felt like when I was sitting in those rooms that I was on, that, that this, that it was just so clearly not my path. And I think had I started there, it would have been a really different story, but I had very different information at that time. And and I also had just, I think, a, a sense of self-trust that I couldn't beat out of myself. Um, I couldn't submit to to another rule book.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so much to break down from what you just said. One of my favorite things that you talk about in your explanation of why AA doesn't work for you and why you feel it in general doesn't work for women and other disenfranchised groups is because they ask you to give up your power, which for you was the very thing, gaining your power back and stating who you are and claiming your right to take up space. Those were the things that helped you actually get sober. So by giving up your power, you were like basically going back to your mindset you had when you were addicted to alcohol. Can we go through that a little bit and and why the patriarchy is tied up in AA and why it doesn't quite work for women in disenfranchised group. Was that your main takeaway or what, what is your main takeaway on AA in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, have you and it's not even just AA in general, it's actually just recovery like the like the recovery complex, the recovery industrial uh, complex okay. and like the and, and the paradigms that run through recovery communities. And what we encounter because AA does inform that AA was created in the 30s, 1930s, it's something that regardless of whether or not you use it as a program, it still is there informing uh how people See, like in general, how we as a society and a culture see recovery, and I think it's so like not so much. There's all these like tiny little pieces of it. There's powerlessness, which absolutely is something that I think when you come into when you drink because you feel so powerless. Confronting that, even though the idea is it's just powerlessness over alcohol. Typically, that powerlessness, especially is how I encountered it with other people. You know, it, it there's 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 the written instructions and then there's dogma, which is what other people basically take and and turn uh, on you. And so for me, when I encountered powerlessness, it was just in general, you are powerless. And so there's that piece and there's other things like doing an inventory of your defects of character, which again, I talked about in my book as something that I had already become, you know, my whole life I had been, you know, essentially like very sensitive to all the things that were wrong with me. And I had tried to get rid of all the things that were wrong with me and it hadn't worked so far. There's all these pieces of it, but I think the thing that is most important for like how I understand it now was I felt deeply that this was, again, as I was saying, there was a sense of self-trust There was a sense of developing, it's okay and it's safe to trust myself. It's okay to go this way. It's okay to do this thing regardless of what everyone else thinks. And I mean, even my family felt that not going to AA, not working the 12 steps, you know, there was all sorts of coded language around that. Like I, if I was really serious about getting well, I get real help. And by real, help, how health, did you it.
0: deal with that? Like, because Oof. there's so many people who <laughs> come into your life and think that they know better than you. And a big part of the book is learning how to trust your own voice, learning how to That's trust right. your own gut. Yeah. How, when you're in the beginning stages of that, do you respond to somebody who's coming in and claiming that they know the right way for you to get better?
1: Oh, God. I mean, I, my whole body shut down. I, I don't know how to explain it other than to just say there's a sense of like, this is wrong. This is not right. Like, I, I, like, there was such a, for the first time, conviction that I knew what was right for myself versus what the world was telling me was right for me. And I think that that's the crux of it, right? There was, there was nothing other than I can't, I can't force this down. I can't swallow it. And I think it's just one of those things where, For me, this is like to take it back to the question you asked, which is how do like how is how are these structures informed by patriarchy? And I think like when I think of it, I think of whose stories are told when I think of what what it means to have, you know, to be a woman and to have lived through and and to be a woman and then also to be at other intersections of identity that hold you out of power. You know, what it means is your story isn't part of the story. Your, your story is written for you as a prop. Your story is written for you as an outsider, as somebody that's property, as somebody that isn't to be trusted, as somebody that inherently lies, as somebody that is burned for telling the truth or thinking differently or saying that, you know, the power might be within us and not within the structure. Everything that exists is exists in order to uphold a system or a structure that holds you out of power. And so for me, when I think of, how this ties into patriarchy? I think of things like I think of Megan Waterson's work. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she writes about Mary Magdalene, and she writes about mm-hmm. how just the Bible and 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 really all religious and spiritual tradition and story, they write women out of the history. They write Mary Magdalene as a prostitute, as a like as a as a, so as a instead of an. I was just looking this up yesterday.
0: <laughs> Were you? I was. I was literally googling. Mary, Mary's in the Bible, and then all these articles started coming up on that, and it's just funny that you bring that up.
1: (laughs) Well, no coincidences, right? No, definitely not. The whole point of it is that like women's stories are written out of the Bible. The Bibles, like the the actual Gospels that ended up in the New Testament, were selected in like 400 AD by a group of men, and they were Mm -hmm. selected in order to uphold the dominant narrative, and so all of that, you know, like again, a few thousand millennia of our stories and, and, and really like our intuition of women being silenced of women eating it. And so, and again, at intersections of identity, it gets worse and worse. It's just the first level of silence or silencing or being held out of, 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 of the being held out of power, at least being held out of being told what your, your way is wrong. Right. And the system is right. And I think there was just, for me, I didn't have words for this when it started. There was just a I would say like an, a rising awareness that this was not my path. And also for the first time, a a sense of of something that was strong enough to to carry on with the path I felt was right for myself. And so in this, like in this way, when those first St- like the, you know, when, when like, for instance, a friend would write me a letter and say, I feel like you should really try the 12 steps. It seems like you're struggling. It seems like you're in pain. Like everybody had this like literally prescription for me. And I just like seemed to not be able to take it. it just, every time that happened, it was a hit and it hurt and it hurt my entire body. And, and then there was also like this just indignant, no, I am not doing that like this, this like voice of indignation, like that came out of somewhere from within the recesses of me that said, "It's okay to trust yourself." Yeah, it made me mad. I mean, every time that happened, it made me so angry, and that poor, that allowed me to move in a different direction because I couldn't stomach it.
0: Yeah, and you can feel your anger and your passion and your just heart through this book when you're reading your words and and how we've all been lied to and we yeah. bought the lie and mm-hmm. you're taking on these big organizations i mean not only are you taking on like re- most established recovery programs um you're not recovery addiction programs so do we call it that what's the right i want to make sure i'm using the correct terminology
1: i mean you can just call it like you can call it the like re- the uh god re- i mean i call it at some point i think the recovery industrial complex but i mean you can just call it like the the recovery landscape or addiction treatment yeah. in general
0: yeah so you're taking system. on the the recovery landscape you're taking on the patriarchy you're taking on big alcohol when you were going about this i mean it doesn't feel this way but did you have any fear in the repercussions of taking on these long established and very profitable some of them at least big alcohol one of the most yeah. organizations
1: no i mean i think this is also like when i used to do tarot i used to constantly pull the card of the fool i mean i just feel <laughs> like and i don't know if you know that card but it's like it's just, you know, like some guy just kind of walking off a cliff, holding a fit. I mean, I just, I think that a lot of this has just been, it's not <laughs> bravery. It's sometimes stupidity of just, you know, going forward with what I feel I, I have to do and what I feel is important without really thinking too far ahead about what the consequences are. Um, I mean, and not not in a reckless way, but just in a way where um, if I were to actually think about it then I probably wouldn't do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How can we all pull a little bit more of the fool card in our own lives? Because something I talk about on the show a lot is like how to take fear out of the driver's seat and not allow it to make decisions for you. That's something that to me, it's clear that you do on a daily basis. You are the one that is making the decisions in your own life. What's your advice for someone who's currently crippled by fear?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One, I think to think that like I don't feel fear is a um a misnomer. And I love like Pema Chodron's work, I love Brene Brown's work because they both talk very, very specifically about how racking it is and how terrifying it is. That it's not a lack of fear. It's it's feeling fear and doing it anyway. That is such an important distinction. I am scared most of the time and not in a way where it's incapacitating, but just in the way where I'm very, very intimately familiar with fear and heartbreak and backlash and all sorts of things. I think that like the, the piece that's so important to remember is no one's like that so one of my coaches told me once like no one is coming to get you like they are not mm-hmm. going to show up at your door with pitchforks. And that's the story I think so many of us carry especially again coming back to this idea that is you know like the like if you look at women through history I mean they did come with pitchforks or if you look at certain groups today they they still come. And I think, like, for us, like, the for me, it has always been about having this specific, like, I I would, I think it's finding the thing that is important enough to me to um, to risk it for. And it, it was, the choice was to either, like, die this slow death of holding in the things that were important to me, of not saying the things that were important to me, this, like, slow, aching, numbing, like, existence where I sat on it and where I let, like, other people's opinions or the fear of what might happen dominate, right? So there's that fear, right, which is – or that existence, which is terrible. Or there's the existence of, like, taking the creative risk of putting the thing out there, whether it's just a painting or words or a political statement or a song. I mean, it is just putting the thing out there and realizing, like, to me, that is the death, the thing that is far worse is not putting the thing out there. And then when you start to do it, you just start to realize what are you clinging to? What kind of like validation are you clinging to? What kind of like story are you clinging to? I mean, I like every time I even post like a fucking Instagram post, you know, like I'm just like, oh my God, what if they, you know, but it's just like getting over myself again and again and again and again to realize like this is like when things come to us, it, when things come to us, it's not a mistake. I posted about this actually today. It is not a mistake when we have inspiration. It is not the wrong address. It is the right address. It's just, are you willing to bring it forth? Are you willing to be you know, this, um, as Marion Williamson says, she says, you know, like the, are you willing to be the faucet? You're not the water. You're not the thing. You are, you're basically the valve It needs to flow through. And it's just continuously remembering that, like, that's our responsibility. Things come to us. It's our responsibility to bring them forth.
0: Something that I love that you put in the book is that a core piece of sobriety is learning how to build a life I don't want or need to escape from. Yeah. We're all... I mean, especially now, so detached from our true nature when we're engaged with technology or all these things that don't matter. Yeah. What are what are some ways that we can get back to who we really are?
1: Oh, man, that's such a good question. Um, I think, you know, like the, the, the super cliche answer is to unplug and get off social media and put your feet in the dirt. But I think like the bigger thing is um, – There's so much beauty around us all the time, and it's paying attention. I I really think it comes down to paying attention to the messages that we're receiving, to the environment that we're in, to the sky that's above us, to all the things that are around us. Whenever I am miserable, it's because I forgot to pay attention. Mm. And so, my way back constantly is to get present, to remind myself of the beautiful things that exist. Um, We can get so sucked into the news cycle. We can get so sucked into the comparison game. We can get so sucked into the not there yet or not enough. And it is always coming back to what is. And even in despair, even in the worst parts of my life, I can still with practice come back to that place. I can still come back to faith. I can still come back to awe. I can still come back to reverence. Um, even in the worst places.
0: It's I love there. that. Yeah. And you go over so many amazing, I mean, again, I highly recommend the book. I got so much out of it. I actually, <laughs> I, I took some of your morning routine this morning. I had hot water with lemon before mm. I had my coffee because I usually so just good. dive into the caffeine.
1: Yeah. And
0: then I meditated. Nice. Yeah. But I think that that's a great way too, is like really like sealing your day. Like you suggest having a morning routine and a night routine that is just for you, that helps you set a foundation so that when you go out into the world, you already know who you are. You're not going to let the world inform who you are. That's right. Yeah. It's so easy to forget. My favorite chapter of the book is chapter eight, and you talk about working with our core beliefs. That's the title of the chapter. Mm -hmm. And you say the core beliefs are self-advocacy, self-trust, and self-practice. And within each of these, there are subsections. So if it's okay, I'd love to go through a few of those because there are things that I had never heard before. So one, choose guilt over resentment. As an Italian Catholic, this (laughs) blew me away. (laughs) So can we go over the example with your mom?
1: Yeah, we were actually in L.A. this weekend. She, my mom was in um, in L.A. with me and we were actually talking about this and, and laughing. Um, yeah, the the example is I did this like thing with my mom where I drove and picked her up from Fresno and took her to L.A. and then we flew out of L.A. and then we were for days In Dallas, just spending time together. I did this trip with my mom just to be with my mom. And then we got back to L.A. And, again, I was going to drive my mom to Bakersfield so she didn't have to go on the bus portion of the trip between Bakersfield and L.A. And I had done, you know, this period of time where I was with my mom for, like, day and night. I'm an introvert, like, to the core. I have to have my alone time, my alone space. I have to have my yoga, my meditation and i also i i was running my own business at the time and 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 i i i could elect to take time off and i did and then i had a pile up so i hit this point of feeling like i i had to either drive my mom and do this 5 hour round trip and again neglect taking care of myself and i it was already boiling over. I was already just feeling vicious towards this very sweet five foot you know seventy five year old woman and like I had this moment where i i could i decided instead of taking it out on her and being angry at her when she didn't even ask for me to be angry at her, right like she didn't ask for me to do something for her so that i could resent her for it i instead asked her if she would you know book a ticket on a bus get on the bus and save me 5 hours so i could invest in taking care of myself and this sounds like it was one of those things where it just feels like it's it's so easy for us to just say oh it's just 5 hours you could have just done this that would have been the good daughter thing to do that would have been the good human thing to do but it wasn't just 5 hours it was it's my mental health and these are the choices that i make consistently and constantly that add up to allowing me to live in a space where i am not always like blowing my you know blowing my ceiling like i'm i'm i or you know blowing my self care and so anyway, I talk about that I chose guilt. I chose to feel this guilt of putting my disabled mother on a bus for a few hours so that I could save some time and take care of myself when it was absolutely necessary for me to take care of myself. And that the guilt still lives with me. I still think about it. I still like. I still think about it. And I think that's one of those things. Like, guilt is something that we can negotiate with ourselves and resentment though it's something that we typically feel toward other people when we do when we go past our boundary we go past our no and we do things we don't want to do because we feel like we're supposed to do them and what ends up happening in those situations is we start to resent the other person for it and so it's like it's a simple example is it's a Friday night and at the last minute your friend says hey like do you mind if you, like, could you come with me to a movie? I really, like, feel alone and I need, like, somebody to take, like, somebody to, like, spend time with me tonight. And you don't want to do it. You absolutely want to go home and get in your PJs and go to bed, but you feel like the right thing to do would be to do this. And, like, there's so many examples of this. And this isn't to say you don't ever spend time with other people or do good things or nice things for other people. But it is coming back to – like when you do something that is clearly a no for you, but you say yes anyway, what you end up doing is – and and you do it, you know, out of this idea of being a good person Then what you end up doing is resenting the situation, resenting the other person. It's a lot easier to choose guilt, to actually like listen to yourself, to, you know, listen to your no or listen to your yes and to go with that and deal with the repercussions of feeling guilty for maybe not being like the best
0: – you know, whatever, the best daughter or friend or whatever it is. And on a macro level, it is much kinder. On a micro level, you feel like an asshole in the moment. And (laughs) and I think, I, I mean, I respected it so much because I can think to so many examples actually with my own mother who I love, like my favorite human in the entire world. I love to pieces, but she was staying with me over the summer after her mother passed away. And she was here in my one bedroom apartment with me for six and a half weeks. And I, (laughs) I mean, I felt like it was an act of, uh, I I felt like it was like my uh, God's work that I did. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it, it truly was. But I remember there was a specific day where I was so frustrated that I went down into my car and literally just screamed expletives. Yep. But I kept choosing resentment over guilt because. I felt that I needed to do the right thing and be the good daughter when really what would have been the right thing to do is like, hey, mom, for tonight, do you mind like going out and spending time at the restaurant down the street? I really just need to be alone for a few hours. How can I learn to sit in the discomfort of the guilt and other people who are like me? How can we learn to sit in this discomfort of the guilt and know that it truly is the better choice and the kinder choice in the long run?
1: I mean, I think you get used to it. The the other thing about guilt is that when you start working with it, I mean, it's it's something only you can release yourself from, right? Like if you want to choose the storyline that you're a terrible person for taking care of yourself, right, you can run with that and kind of sit in that hot, steamy pile of shit for a long time. (laughs) But the other piece of it is like you can also start to work with this and to allow yourself to like let yourself off the hook, to be kind to yourself. I mean, that's the other part of it too is that... And we start to work with this like when i'm I'm kidding in a way when I say I still have this soul crushing guilt about this, I mean my heart breaks in a in a like normal way. my heart breaks for the fact that I'm even in a situation we even live in a day and age where my mom lives in another town and I have to put her on a bus, and the person I put her on a bus with may or may not help her with her like luggage. It's a heartbreaking thing not being able to like you know, be there a hundred percent of the time to make sure that people we love are perfectly taken care of is a heartbreaking thing. So there's that piece of it, right? Like there's also the piece of where we get to like the place where we are kind enough to ourselves that we let ourselves off the hook. And so for me, it's just like, I have given up this idea that I am everything to everyone. I've given up this idea that I need to respond to every message that lands in my inbox or my DMs, or that everybody that has a drinking problem that comes to me for advice is my responsibility. Mm. Or that like, I am like, I will be a good person if I take care of every single thing that comes to me. I don't, I get, I get lots of emails I cannot respond to. I get lots of of asks that I cannot fulfill. And lots of people I cannot help come to my doorstep. And that's a thing, right? And I can either sit around and I can feel like I'm a terrible person, or I can understand that like I am just one person. I'm constantly doing the best that I can. I trust the decisions that I make and that I am responsible you know, of, of all things, what I'm responsible for is being kind to myself. That's the thing I'm responsible for. And that makes for, that is the thing that undoes the nightmare, right? When we start to have compassion for ourselves, that's the root of it. And we start to have like this deep love and reverence for ourselves and our, our, you know, and our total like humanity, our humanity, we're, we're messy human beings. And we start to have love for this. Like it just, creates a totally different story. So that's part of it. It's just how how kind can we be to ourselves? How much compassion can we be to our, like how much compassion can we muster
0: for ourselves? Yeah. I love that. So self-compassion might be the antidote. Um, there's, there's another long
1: one. To, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that <laughs>
0: there, there was another one in in chapter eight that really hit me. Again, never heard anyone say this before. Willingness is phase two. So if oh, I yeah. understand the principle correctly, yes. if we're going to take like getting sober, yeah. it might be uh, the the first phase would be, I want to stop drinking. The second phase would be is, I'm willing to be ready to stop drinking. And phase three would be, I have stopped drinking. Yeah. And, and I feel like this could be applied to anything in life. And I think a lot yeah. of the times, like things we want to manifest or mantras feel so out of reach because there's no kind of, map to get there and to me this gave a map yeah i mean willingness is yeah sorry no no go ahead no i just i i'm curious like how this concept has shown up for you and how you think it can help others
1: yeah i think it is it's a concept that i think has come through my own sobriety which is understanding that there is like the simple willingness to do something is kind of the is the momentum that we need, right? And so a lot of times we'll get like like specifically just talking about sobriety, a lot of times we'll we'll come to a conclusion that alcohol might not be serving us, right? Like and sobriety to, to sobriety in terms of alcohol. It's just like take that one example. Alcohol is not serving us or we have a problem with it or um, it's something that we want to be free of. Okay. And so it's I want to quit drinking. And then the the end result is and where a lot of people think they have to go is I will never have another drink again in my life, or I am, I am going to be, I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life or what it's the extreme version of that. Right. So we go from, I want to make this change. And then we go to the end result, the most, the most manifested of the change. And we forget that there's an entire middle part. And so there's the part where like, it is really hard to get on board if you're somebody that has been drinking for 20 or 30 years, if it's part of your daily existence, if you can't imagine what it's like to make dinner without a glass of wine, if you're somebody that like can't imagine going to a book club or a girls' night out or a date or a dinner or a baby shower or a wedding or a birthday or a baseball, like there's so many different ways it's wrapped up into our lives and to go from, hey, this is not working out to I'm never having this again is to go through like, <laughs> is, well, it's not even to do anything. It's impossible. It is impossible for us to limbically to emotionally to cognitively and also just like on a like lizard like on a survival level it's hard for us to just like turn the car around and be or like turn the car around and be like okay I'm I'm done with all these things and so willingness is just this thing it's an energy that allows us to exist between these two states it allows us to say I'm willing to change my drinking I'm willing to look at how alcohol is showing up in my life I'm willing to try not drinking I'm willing to Go to a baseball game without a beer. I'm willing to. It allows us to move into the space of our intention without it having to be this like perfect end result. And so, yeah, I love it because you can put it in between it like a the statement of where you are and the aspirational statement. Right. And allow yourself like the space to actually work on it and lean toward it and not have to be perfect at it or have it be so absolute because otherwise, it's just impossible.
0: Yeah. And something I love that you talked about was that, like, it's not going to happen all at once. Like, you might, you know, not quit drinking cold turkey. Like, it could be a slow build up to that. And I think that traditional programs give very little grace to that concept. And the idea that maybe it's going to take time, maybe you won't be perfect. And all the things that go around that that there's no shame in that that there is there is something to be said for the fact that you are getting up every day and working toward it it that's took right. a lot of pressure off of thinking about it
1: that's right that's right
0: and and that's a big tenet of your program, Tempest, so I wanna shift into that a little bit and just talk about like where this idea came from and what it is.
1: Yeah. So it came from my own experience. Tempest is a digital modern recovery um, solution. And so we exist between AA and or other free options that are typically just support group and support group with some sort of program. We exist between free options like AA and uh, rehab. And so Tempest is a, it's a modality that specifically was created based out of my own experience, but not in a, of my own experience. And so, the way that we help individuals is by giving people the ability to pull together a pro, like a holistic program of recovery. So, it's not just working on spirituality or uh, behaviors or cravings. We actually help people construct a personalized map of recovery and implement that. Um, within community and also with support. And so it's a program that helps people basically figure out how do I, how do I heal myself in a way, in a, in a holistic way, in a way that you know, counts in our physical body, our um, our social lives, our romantic lives, our, our spirituality, our existentialism. So it counts all of us and it gives us a roadmap out um, and it does that within a, within a program with,
0: with peers and also a care team. And I love that you're so open about the pitch process for Tempest in the book. You talked about how you had an opportunity to pitch to a friend who is a VC. He basically rejected you. Then you went back to your pitch deck and started working on it again, really fleshed it out, pitched the idea again, and then you got rejected again. And then the third time you went for it, that's when you got millions of dollars And a lot of people will have, you know, one or two rejections and then just give up. I know that for you, this was such a calling. It wasn't just a passion. It was a calling. It was social justice. There was everything tied into it. But I call that moment a creative crossroads where you have the the option of, okay, I've gotten rejected. Do I give up or do I take a different route and go even further toward my dream? Um, How did you approach those failures and turn them into information so that you could do better and get the funding you needed.
1: Yeah, I mean there were there were hundreds of failures in that regard. It was it's it's laid out in like a three phase process, but there was so much in between each of those. And I had a first of all, there was no choice for me. It was do this thing. And then second of all, I wanted to quit and tried to quit a thousand times. I, I just remember this one day, like I was working as a consultant. I was making enough money to pay, like, you know, to break even. It was not going good. I'd been doing it for, I don't know, maybe like a year at that point. And I just was like, I'm going to start pulling my resume together. And I am going to like figure out like, this is, this is, uh, this is insane. And this is never going to work. I mean, I had so many moments like that where, and then right as I was about to give up, And probably not really give up. But every time I got close to really, really throwing in the towel, um, there's either just the propulsion forward or somebody in my corner being like, you know, you're not going to quit. And it was so mission driven. Like that's another thing that's really important to understand. There is a venture capital story here. We raised money so that we could grow it faster because I always knew I didn't want this just to be something that I did with a handful of people. I wanted to... I wanted to create a different recovery modality and I wanted to serve like millions of people. But when it, when people ask me about this specifically, when like I'm doing something that's more on the venture side, or I'm talking to, I'm talking to, you know, basically people that are like, how do you raise money? How do you like, how do you start a business? Like the main point is it was never to make money. Right. And I think that that's the thing is when we have something in us that is just a thing we know we have to do um and we yield to it we'll continue to find the means to keep it going i made it through all of that because i knew the thing had to succeed like there was just no other way it was that or die trying and so um that was it and there was so many rejections along the way um
0: but yeah yeah you well when when you have your purpose tied to service you just have to keep moving forward i mean you might get knocked down. You cry. You throw yourself on the ground and ask God why, and then you get back up twenty minutes later and you're working on your pitch deck again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like yeah. there's no option. You just have to keep going. Um, so I love that like,
1: every other day. I mean, so much time, <laughs> and on it the still floor. happens.
0: I'm sure this deep into the journey yeah. where there. It, you know yeah. it's not like, "Oh, I got the money, and then all my problems went you know, away it got
1: harder <laughs> got harder right doesn't make anything easier ever, but right. it's just a it's just a different level in it, but that is the thing that keeps me going in all of this is I believe in what I'm doing, and I believe like that I'm supposed to be doing it and and luckily now it's not just me, you know there's a lot of people that work with me that believe the same thing, and that makes it easier,
0: but yeah, it's a road, yeah, of course, it's inspirational though. So besides Chapter 8, my favorite other part of the book was this quote, Addiction is a response to repressed creation. Ooh, this yeah. made me cry because the comment that I constantly say on the show is repressed creativity is the cause of so much of the world's suffering. It and is. I truly believe that, Like whether it's an unlived life inside you, whether it manifests as an addiction or just depression. I mean, there's so many ways that us pushing down who we truly are and all these lives inside of us comes out in truly unhealthy and miserable ways. So in the book, you talk about how your sobriety has increased your creativity. Can you go through some of those examples? Sure. I mean, creating a company, that's
1: like a huge piece of it. I think there Um, my first pieces of channeling it were I literally just got printer paper and I got crayons and I drew and I started to take pictures. My friend like taught me, took me on a six hour tour through New York one time and just taught me how to use my iPhone camera. And I started to take pictures with that. That was around the time Instagram was coming out. And so I started to filter and I started to figure out like even just how to edit on my phone. And then from there, it was just like when I started to write, that was a huge creative outlet for me. And then I created my own website. And then I, you know, so there was creating content, there was creating uh, curriculum, there was creating, you know, like a website and design and my newsletter. I mean, all of it was just, I mean, all of that is an act of creation. It's just, it's everything that I've done to this, you know, to this point, especially to start this company, uh, to write this book. I and mean, that's it's an act of creation, and it's allowing myself again to just channel stuff that comes through me, right? And it hurts when I don't. It actually hurts when I don't. Um, yeah. Because
0: mm-hmm. you're denying yourself. Yeah. And I and I think that that's such great advice for anybody who has been engaging in any unhealthy behavior instead of being the creative soul that they are start out small, like do what Holly did, literally get a pack of crayons and start drawing like you did when you were little, or like maybe you didn't get the opportunity to do when you were little because people stifled that in you. So get back to that little kid because she, he, they are dying to get out and yeah. be expressed into the world and maybe create the next Tempest or create your big song or your book. It's, it's right. so important. What you have to say could literally change the course of history. That's right. And I appreciate that what you're doing is just that. I have two final questions for you, Holly. All right. So I want to get back to our little Holly, five-year-old.
1: Yeah. And
0: I believe creativity is intricately connected to the inner child. So I'm wondering if you and little Holly were standing in the same room looking at each other and she's seeing you now and you're seeing her, what would she say to you, adult Holly, and why?
1: Oh, God. Um... I can't even, I'm imagining that she would be, I'm imagining that she would be, well, I guess she would probably not be surprised. (laughs) I think maybe like 10 year old me would be surprised, but if we're looking at five year old me, I think she still thought she could do anything. So I don't think she would be surprised. I think she would be like, yeah, that's it. (laughs) She would also be very excited that I'm still wearing (laughs) very, very mismatched things um, and whatever the hell I want to wear. Um, She'd be very excited about my my wardrobe.
0: That's so important. I still wear huge bows. Like literally some of the bows that I wore when I was five still go on my head today.
1: (laughs) I always have this idea that I'm going to wear something that's super pulled together and then I'm just like, oh my God, no, this is what I want to wear today. So yeah. Yeah.
0: hmm yeah. And that's so much of what you talk about in the book is doing what feels good to you. Yeah, that's right. And what would you say to little Holly and why? I would tell
1: her not to let the bastards get her down, to just trust herself, to just keep going and to just be like, to just be herself, to just continue to do
0: what she wants to do to the beat of her own drum and that she'll be fine. I love it. Well, Holly, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for really, I mean, I know this is a guidebook for how to get sober, but really, I think it's a guidebook for how to become and remember who you are.
1: Yeah. I so think thank so you. Too. Thank you. I appreciate
0: thank you. For you. Me on. I appreciate you too. Thank you so much for listening. And to my guest, Holly Whitaker. For more info on Holly, follow her on Instagram at Holly. Literally, she has a one-name Instagram handle. It's just at H-O-L-L-Y. You can check out her company, Tempest, at jointempest.com. Buy her book, Quit Like a Woman, and I highly, highly recommend it anywhere books are sold. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And thank you. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Follow us on Spotify and connect on social media at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Erna Creative. Also, if you're loving the show, take a screenshot of yourself listening and post it to your socials. Tag me and Unleash, and I will reshare. If you haven't already share the show with a friend. What better way to connect with a friend than to listen to a creative podcast and discuss it and debrief it together. Such a bonding experience. My wish for you this week is that you tune into your inner voice and like Holly are unafraid to take your own path. Even if the world tells you it's wrong, knowing that your truth is what's right for you. I believe in you. Talk next week.